Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Alright, um, I, I, I put it in IQ ticket and they replaced it and they replaced the projector. We can have lights on and everything. Have, it's the newest projector in the whole university. That's a, I feel special and excited. Okay. Um, so I'll finish up talking about some of the introductory stuff today, then we'll get a little bit into the history, which is I think where you should look at that thing on the CMS, which is the uh, thing that about Ebbinghaus. Uh, take a look at that. It won't take you long, it'll take you 10 minutes to read probably, but it gives you some insight. Um, by the way, the enrollment code again is Tulving, T-U-L-V-I-N-G. Also take a look, of course, at that article by Andrew Tulving um, uh, that I posted there at the CMS. All right. So um, we were talking about some of the ways of investigating stuff. You can look at practice effects. That's basically learning, right? That's what, in a lot of respects, that's more the acquisition phase. The idea about looking at imaging, and I think I use the example of words like justice and freedom versus words like chair and table. It's easier to remember words like chair and table than it is to remember words like justice and freedom. Maybe the case that there's a dual code that we not only encode the meaning of a word, but we also encode a picture of the word in essence. Now, I'm not entirely sure I'd buy that. Um, and I'm not... I don't, I'm not entirely sure. I'm quite sure the whole of cognitive psychology doesn't buy it. But some people do. It's not like it's a bad idea. And it's an idea that was originally raised by Colin Chocolate Greater We in. Um Al Cabio. Uh, that was his idea was the idea of the dual code. That's a question. Yeah, please, sorry. What's the core code? Three seven. Holding, T U L V I N G. Um, T-U-L-V-I-N-G. I will write it here. It's not? Oh, wait, no, but it's capital. somebody's name. It's got a capital. Sorry, I didn't realize it was case sensitive, but it is. Okay, anyway, so El Pabio, um at Western had the idea of the dual code hypothesis. And he talked about it for years, like until he retired about 10 years ago. The guy who actually had exactly the opposite idea, a guy who looked at it more from a neural networking uh, modeling approach, was a guy with the name, also with Y, a P rather. I believe that's how you pronounce his spell's name. Zenon Polition. Um, they had offices across the hall from each other, and they were like arch enemies academically, which is kind of great. Um, I don't think they dislike each other. I just think that they thought each other's ideas were wrong. Now, when I was the, uh, the site club at Western, I was undergrad, probably still do, and my buddy was the president, and I was the vice president, and we went to Zen Polition, and we said, we would like you to come, get, have it, come to one of our pub nights and have an arm wrestling competition to settle this thing once and for all. And he said, have you ever, do you know that, have you ever actually looked at Al? He said, yeah, Al's a big guy. He said, no, Al was actually a bodybuilder and won Mr. Ontario in 1959. There's no way I'm doing this. So it's actually, it's an interesting idea. It's kind of fallen out of favor, the uh, dual code hypothesis. But it's still something you'll see. So, I mean, looking up stuff by Al Pavio, if you're interested in that, uh, would be a way to go. I already mentioned how you can look at 
errors and analyzing those allows you to really get a good feel for how something's encoded. All right. So one of the things we often look at are models, and we'll have a class on, on, on models. The one that you all learned probably in intro psych was the Atkinson-Schifrin model. Right? I'm sure you all learned that. It's the classic. Um, it's a three-store model. Uh, I can tell you the world is not quite this simple, but this is a nice way to begin. Um, the same sort of way that when you are, when you learn in grade ten about atoms, and you learn that there are orbits and electrons go around protons around the nucleus, kind of like planets go around the star. Then you realize, then you're told later on that's actually not true. But it's a nice guess, a nice approximation. This is the same sort of thing. Um, there's at least four components in here. I can think of at least four off the top of my head here. So I mean, there's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than this. But this gives you an idea, and this this comes out in the I don't know. I, I guess I'd say the late '50s, early '60s. People start talking like this, and they say that first of all, there's the sensory register. Now the sensory register is unprocessed sensory information. So you can talk about Atkinson and Schiffer, he's talking about the icon. The icon is your retina, basically. It's just the pattern of activation on your retina. That's all it is. Pattern of light. It's exceedingly short-lived. Uh, short we measure this in hundreds of milliseconds, how long this lasts. If you do anything with this information, it is brought into short-term memory. Short-term memory, again, lasts a very short amount of time. If you're not working with something, it's gone in a couple seconds. Okay? You'll hear people say, oh, I have short-term memory. It seems like I have short-term memory loss. I can't remember where I put something. That's not short-term memory. No. It's actually this. So short-term memory, or sometimes you'll hear today short-term store, or much more commonly today working memory. Um, and what we have here is where we're working. Remember I talked about the idea of the, um, that's what I'm looking for, the, 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 the um, analogy of the workbench. This is where the work, this is where the workbench basically is. This is working memory. Now, Atkinson and Schiffer didn't think of it that way. They thought of it as a place where you brought things into basically consciousness. It's just not that different. What has to happen here is stuff comes in here from sensory register, but then we have to, now for the computer analogy, we have to load sort of what we call what we want to call control processes. We have to load the reading program, right? So we can read something, or we have to keep in mind. Maybe you're talking about something that happened before. So you can bring that in as well. This has limited capacity. In fact, it has a capacity of seven plus or minus two items. I think it's plus or minus two, that doesn't mean for you it's... What that means is for somebody in here it's maybe it's six, someone else it's seven, someone else it's eight. It doesn't mean that for sometimes it's five, sometimes it's six, sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's eight. Uh, it means that within a single person it's somewhere between seven and seven plus or minus two items. Now what's an item? Uh, 
It's the amount, the amount of things you can store. It's very, it's an exceedingly circular definition. It's a chunk of information. Okay? It's a chunk of information. And what's a chunk? It's the smallest amount of things you can you know, short term memory. See? So it's circular. So it does have some problems. It has some nice expl uh, explanatory power because, I mean, in fact, we can do this. I can, I can give you, there's a reason phone numbers are seven numbers long in North America. That was done on purpose. When we switched over from having letters and numbers to just numbers, we had to figure out what you're going to do. Went with seven because, in fact, some of this stuff was just coming out. Now, the thing is, we don't store phone numbers as seven digits anymore. We still store those two chunks. Right? The university phone number is 949-2301. You can even hear the way I say it, but it's two, two items. You look at something like a Canadian postal code, those are six, they, 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 though they're, they're, they're grouped as two different things. You can't, it's hard to chunk P6A or N6C or whatever. Right? So those probably are actually six items. We could have done it the smart way like they do in the UK where the first two letters are actually the name of where you're going. So to Oxford, it's OX1, OX2, OX2. What a crazy idea. <laughs> no, no, we went with something to make it easier for the post office, which is fine. So you have to learn, if you move to a new place that starts, doesn't start with the, the same letter, you're, you gotta, it's like you have to learn it all over again, right? Postal code in Newfoundland was A2H. I can't remember the rest of it. I remember my first phone number, but I can't remember my postal code. Of course, I don't send myself a lot of letters. <laughs> um, so this is limited capacity. doesn't last long. If you're not doing anything with it, it lasts an exceeding. It disappears. It's gone. Then there's this, long-term memory. And it lasts. It's basically in the model, in the active super model. It's, it lasts forever. It lasts forever. And it has, in essence, limitless capacity. We know it must have a physical limit, but we probably can't reach it. Now, sometimes, this is, this, this is theoretical. Well, it's all theoretical, obviously. Got a dotted line here going from sensory register all the way to long term memory. The notion is that sometimes stuff doesn't get processed by short term memory but goes right from sensory register all the way to long term memory. This may explain things like deja vu. So it feels like you've seen this before. You have, yeah, you just did. It just didn't go into consciousness. It went all the way to long term memory. I don't know again that I buy that. I'm just saying it's a, it's a possible explanation. All right, questions about this? You've probably seen this before in intro. Right? Okay. Now, other model, sort of modeling approaches we can talk to, more modern ideas, are the ideas like neural networks. A lot of you have great behavior with me and know about the idea of a neural network from the neural point of view. Here I'm talking about it from a modeling point of view. So this is now a mathematical thing. It operates as if 
these nodes in the model are, are separate. It operates the same rules as neurons, things like temporal and spatial summation, those kind of things. Okay. We have set separate processes, or processors rather, or nodes in the model. And then activation spreads within the model, so you can recognize something, for example, uh, so it might have uh, attributes of something, different characteristics, etc. So you might go from, say, lines, recognizing lines, to letters, to words, to concepts. So the idea here is how, how would we represent, and let's not worry about letters and uh, words, let's go with something more conceptual. So how would we recognize or how do we store what a cat is? So that's one node. Well, it's got fur. And it is animal. And it has four legs. A lot of animals have fur, but not all of them. A lot of animals have four legs, not all of them. Uh, let's see. It breathes. Sure, it's a mammal, that would be underneath here. Yada, 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 yada. All kinds of different characteristics. And of course, those characteristics are shared by cats and dogs and lions and uh, wildebeests. Wildebeests have fur? I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of wildebeests. Hairy. Hairy, yeah, different. So, this may be how we represent, how we uh, concepts. This is more, remember I talked about semantic memory, knowledge about the world? This is going to be how we represent knowledge about the world. This is how we represent knowledge about the world. Uh, questions about that? And again, we'll, talk, we'll have a whole class talking about this. I'm just sort of introducing some ideas. And there's going to be a lot of connections here. And this is done, the, the neat thing about how neural networks work is, with neural networks, ne neural networks can learn. Neural networks are computer programs in this case here. They're not actually in your head. It's a model, okay? But the thing is, the network itself can learn something. So you can teach the model something. Which is actually what happens with us, right? You aren't born with an innate knowledge of what cats are. You eventually learn it. You can take things like neural network uh, approaches and you can actually run systems using them. So for example, a lot of traffic light control systems in inner cities are neural networks. And they learn traffic patterns. <coughs> and they get input from you know, various environmental factors. Say like what the weather is, what time it is, what time of year it is. And they learn what the traffic pattern is, they learn how quickly or how slowly to change the lights. There's a guy who used to work here years, years ago. Uh, he left in 98 when I did. Um, that's my first tour of duty. Uh, and he's a computer scientist. He's the same there. He's now Paul Lindgren. And Paul does neural network stuff, and he's never taken a psychology course in his life. He, he, but he designs 
programs that run things like traffic signals. And it's done totally because you can, you can build these networks, and you can see how this can be done with a computer program, obviously. And then they learn traffic patterns, right? There's sensors in the, in, the, in the street that detect when somebody's there. They get information from what the environmental things are, and they can actually learn how to make run the, the, the traffic signals more, more efficiently, unlike, say, here. <laughs> Where there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to have some. Yeah, ish. I'm sure we do. Yeah, they seem to be on some kind of timer system that they're always red. I think it's the way it works, right? Yeah, if you drive on base, you can hit your red the speed limit. You can hit every green light on base. And so many people drive the speed limit. See, of course, the thing is, a network would have to learn what time of day do people actually drive the speed limit. And that's going to be at that would depend on the time of day, but later on in the day or earlier in the day, people may not drive the speed limit. And the network, you, you could always build in, that people have to learn, build that constraint in, that you know, it has to be people have to go 50 or under. But if someone's going 55, no one's going to get pulled over for more 55, right? It's not going to happen. Even probably 60, yeah, no one's going to get pulled over unless you're in a pretty residential area. Right? Okay, happy birthday. Well, there's that. There is that. I mean, it's the same thing with, like, if you look at, like, <clears throat> well, basically any of these kind of systems. I mean, this is what they're doing. Sort of uh, quality control systems in uh, manufacturing are often run by neural networks. And it makes complete sense. And this all actually comes from the idea of neural networks from psychology, which is quite neat. So we can talk about, and I mentioned episodic versus semantic memory. You can see that in the Tulving article. Episodic memory is fact is, is memory about episodes about your life. It's autobiographical. It's personal. One might say that it is conscious, or one might also say it's uniquely human. I'm just, I know Angel Tulving would say that, because um, he said that many times, so I don't say that. Semantic memory would be something that all, many animals would share, which is knowledge about the world. So this is the difference between knowing what breakfast is and knowing what you had for breakfast. Semantic memory is knowing that breakfast exists and knowing what bacon is. And then episodic memory is knowing that you had bacon this morning. Okay. Oh, I don't think I'm quite that far. It's in some respects we get a point. There's something that's you can see. It's more than I mean. I'm going to in the semantic part. You're saying that's objective, except that what what you know about the world is wrong. It's actually it's actually subject to respect, right? So, but I see what you're saying. So the point you're making is, is well taken, and that's that. Semantic memory is sort of objective facts about the world, though the facts about the world you may have may actually be wrong. Certainly possible, right? Um, and that's Tulding's idea, episodic and semantic. Um, it's the case, in fact, that if you get a bump on the head, more often you're going to lose episodic than semantic. It's very rare when people lose semantic memory. Um, procedural versus declarative. This is Larry Squire's idea. Procedural memory is how to do things. That makes sense. It's procedures. Right? 
So this is things that people like tend to call muscle memory. Muscles don't have memory. Um, but knowing how to do something, and not if you think about it, when you guys think about how many almost all you guys drive cars, you all almost all drive. It's now, for most of you, I imagine, a procedural thing. It just happens. You don't really have to think about it. There's no processing power that really has to go into this. Declarative memory is a lot like episodic memory. In fact, it's hard for me to ever figure out the, the, the distinction between those two. So, at first, you had to use declarative memory. Declarative memory, making declarative statements. I do this, I do that. Again, it sounds really like, much like episodic. So it's like, I will put my, my seatbelt on, I will put the key in the ignition, I will start the car, I will, I don't know, you check your blind spot, maybe what that means. I don't drive. Okay. <laughs> They're everywhere for me. Uh, and uh, one, one big freaking blind spot, the whole world. <laughs> so, and then you can you put it into gear, and you back up, or you got to go forward, whatever gear you put in, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, you, that was taking so much processing power that people didn't, were able to talk to you when you were driving these cars, right? And you'd have to look straight ahead all the time, with your eyes as wide as possible. Don't talk to me, don't put the radio on. Hands at 10 and 2. And now, a few years later, you can, you can you can have a conversation. You can look over and talk to somebody as you're driving. You know when you can do that. Does it take no process? Well, you have to have some processing power. You still have to pay attention to what's around you. Right? And that's why, for example, uh, a texting or a phone call or something like that is actually distracts you. But, so that's Larry Squire's idea, it's procedural versus uh, declarative memory. Uh, in animal memory, we talk a lot about working versus reference memory. And those of you guys who took learning with me know that with working memory with, with, in, in, in comparative psychology, we're talking about the rules of a game, of a task. So it's how to solve any task versus... Sorry, that's, that's reference, how to solve any, any um, this, the, rule, the rules of, of the game, basically. This is how to solve a single trial. So this is like, there's always cheese at the end of the maze, and here's how you get there. And this is, where am I right now, and where am I going? That kind of idea. Okay? These things all share some commonalities. I think we can all say that there's a they're about representation. They're about things that one kinds of tasks that one kind of memory can do, the other kind of memory can't do, that sort of thing. Okay. So some conclusions about this stuff. I actually think it's a pretty it's pretty diverse and I think it's pretty exciting. It's one of the if you're gonna do psychology um, generally, in any global psychology department uh, at, at any uh, university, you'll find that a lot of people work on cognitive stuff. It's a, it's a really big area. And they're doing all kinds of stuff. People from everything from doing things like uh, uh, so cognitive neuroscience to people doing animal memory. They're all working on the same kind of topics. Possible measure memory indirectly, and now maybe directly. It may be the case, in fact, that with 
uh, brain imaging techniques, et cetera, will be able to measure memory directly. We're not really there yet, right? And I think we have a little bit too much of a gee whiz, wow, oh, isn't this awesome factor about MRI, functional MRI, and we get too excited about it sometimes. But we're getting closer to the point where we're able to watch people think, right? And there's a place for sort of the neuroscience types and all this stuff, obviously, right? Um, but the psychologists have to be around too. There has to be somebody designing clever behavioral experiments. It can't just be looking at neurons. And that's the important part, almost out of 10. But you have to have both ends of this. All right, questions about that? So we'll move on to the history stuff. This, this, all right. So let's see what's next. Come on. Show window. Show There. Once this connects, which it's not going to, but then I'll have to reconnect, which is annoying. We try. Never connects the first time through. <coughs> it's easier if you're there. Thank you. Okay. So, um, talk a bit about, about the history of, of studying memory. I really like history. Uh, and I actually told the, the Registrar of Western how many credits I had in history. I had a minor in history. Uh, my best grades as an undergrad were all in history. They were in psychology. Um, I really really love history. So I really love it. Uh, it's almost as cool as what we do. Um, and when you put the two together, history and psychology, some of you guys are in fourth year of taking the history of psych. And those of you that are going to do the four-year program, either the honors or non-honors, are going to take the history of psychology. Um, you'll find that while there's a lot of stuff about later on, earlier than the 19th century, uh, it really starts to get going in the 19th century, psychology. So the history of psychology, to me at least, starts... When you start calling it psychology, you call it psychology... Whoa, that didn't, shouldn't work. Shouldn't happen, really. Let's try that again. That was weird. Oh, that happened. It's, I don't know why that happened. It's so annoying, you know? Let's play from there. Okay, load. Load. Good. Now let's see if they're going to do that dumb thing again or not. It's funny that it does that sometimes. And I don't know what it is, and I've Googled things and such, and nothing ever says, oh, it's because of this. Besides psychology, 19th century. Go have a so it's because of what? Bunt's a guy living in, in Leipzig, in, uh, in Germany, and uh, he decides he's going to really study memory. Like, are you going to start psychology? You start a brand new thing. What are you going to start studying scientifically? Are you going to start studying things like memory? Probably not pretty hard. What you start studying is you start, he really starts experimental psychology by studying sensation and perception really basically elemental processes. So that's what he does. And 
So he's, how do you get the, and this is both basic psychological question, how do you get the external world, how do you make it internal? Right? How do you make the external internal? So it's a very elemental thing. So it's like comparing, you know what he did, you guys probably know this, he did things like comparing different brightnesses of, of lights or weights of objects. This is what he was doing. Which one is heavier? Which one of these is heavier than the Azerbaijan? As I'm talking, in Germany spoke with a ridiculous accent, but he didn't know what So, but that's an interesting question because you might think there'd be a constant difference, right? Five grams, you know it's five grams. Actually, it's not that. It's a, a, a proportion, right? It's a proportion. So, it may be that it's, I don't know, I'm going to make something up, and it'll be a little bit different for each individual, but maybe it's like, it's got to be 5% different. So 5 grams, 105 grams and 100 grams, you can notice the difference. But you wouldn't notice 1,000 grams and 1,005, it would be 1,050. That's the kind of question he's asking. So him and so Vont and Weber, that's Weber's law that I just explained, and Fechner, note something, these guys are all German. Uh, German most people don't realize this, that before, in the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, Germany was the world's scientific superpower. It was where all the science came from, it was where all the heavy industry really was. Um, Germany was really important. Then they did this dumb thing. <laughs> They were on the wrong team in World War One, so they thought they'd try it again. Twenty years later, it didn't work out so well for them. But it's not only a shame for humanity, but it's also a shame just for science because there was so much great. And there is now Germany's back. Of course, it's a long time since those wars, but Germany was really important, and they ceased being important because they kept being involved in world wars on the wrong team. So, what starts psychology, but Ebbinghaus is the first guy that starts studying memory. So, all these ideas that people had about memory, people had ideas like, well, maybe we have, we take this, these elemental processes and we store them somehow, and then we, we can recall them. Well, that's all very interesting, but you have to test these ideas. You have to test the idea that there is memory. So here comes Herman Ebbinghaus, right here. It's hard, you can't see his mouth because it's full. His face is a giant beard. I don't know that he actually had a chin. I think maybe <laughs> he was chinless. Either that or the other possibility, I think, is it's not a beard. But he's one of those guys that like had a fair that puts beard a beard of bees all over himself. I think that's the other possibility. I don't know. I've seen that on TV. Apparently not as funny as I thought it was. Um, but he does he look like a German professor? Yes. He's got the little glasses on the chain, the great big beard. So here comes Herman Ebbinghaus. And what Ebbinghaus does, by the way, first guy to study this, and which is great because that means that both behaviorists, people like they claimed him as the first of theirs. And the cognitive types, people more like me, but I don't put myself in the same league as Skinner wasn't. Um, 
They also say he's the first cognitive psychologist. He's the first person probably studying something other than perception and sensation. Yeah. And when he studied what were called nonsense syllables, what I mean how thought was, look, I'm going to study memory for something. I'm not going to use words. Today we use words. But I'm not going to use words. Because what if one word is more easy to remember than another word? Just because it's a, a more common word. Or as Alpavio might say, because it has a... Uh, it's easy to imagine what it looks like. Okay. So what he does is he makes up consonant, vowel, consonant, trigrams. These nonsense syllables. So, I don't know, like... Uh, bat. That's not a word. Um... Gat is in the words. I don't know if they make the words in German. I don't know. I don't speak German. <laughs> I speak like war movie German. Hansi Ho, Hans, you know, things like that. Japan's up stop. A lot of war movies. It's actually a pretty clever idea. Today, you know, we do actually use these words. Um, we use words, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, you can actually find out how common an English word is. There are literally tables that exist out there. There are, there are websites that list the common, how common a word is. The other thing we can do is clever experimental design, randomly choose words from a dictionary of a certain length. And if we do that, randomly choose them, we should get lists that, on average, over doing it many times, we end up with the same uh, commonality. The thing is, what we can do today is, like I said, there are web, literally websites and lists. Or, you know what people do? They often just use the same set of words that somebody else used. You always see the word, I mentioned it, I think the word assassin is used a lot. The word sequoia is used a lot in memory research. I don't know why, but I think it's because, like, people like Larry Squire, Angle Tolby, Peter Graff, these guys are like, these are good words. We just used them. So people kept using them. They show an effect. <laughs> But this is actually very clever, what Ebbinghaus did, not using nonsense syllables. Now, today what we do, we would use, we would get subjects, I'm sorry, participants to come into the lab, and we would ask them to remember a list of words. Ebbinghaus busted for time, and actually the tradition of psychophysics, like Voigtin, Factor, and Weber, was to study yourself. When you're studying something that's so elemental and so basic like memory, maybe you could study yourself. So that's what he did. Um, so he would try to learn lists of these constant vowel, constant trigrams, these nonsense symbols. And he would learn them to perfection. He would get them to the point where he could remember them perfectly. And then he'd stop and he'd go on to another list. Ebbinghaus House was a lot of fun. Apparently had a lot of free time. This is what Ebbinghaus House does. Uh, also, I mean, perhaps some very large, maybe he didn't get very big grant money, so he could, he could pay subjects to come in. I don't know. But it seems to me that that's not that much fun. But it's for science, damn it! So he does it. First thing he finds, well, the most important thing that he finds is savings. He finds that he learns a list, then to perfection moves on to another list, comes back to that list a couple of weeks later. And finds it, learns it more quickly the second time. Just like we still know today, we still call it savings. 
just like we find in every kind of learning at all, and every kind of memory thing we always remember, we always find savings. Always. And this is true of habituation in a nematode. Um, but this is also true in learning language. Right? If you haven't taken French since grade 10 or something like that, and you walk into the first year French class here, you'd be like, whoa, I forgot a lot of that stuff. But you'd learn it more quickly the second time. There's no doubt. It's like when you do, let's say you, uh, some of you guys uh, want to take one of the graduate school someday and you have to take the juries. And the juries are these ridiculous, stupid exams. Stupid, stupid, stupid standardized tests. To do with them because it's a, it's a scam. I'm pretty sure it's a scam. But one of the tests is your test of quantitative reasoning. In other words, it's a math test. And it's, it's basically about grade 11 math. But you haven't done grade 11 math in seven years. Six years. So you actually go and you get a math book. You pull it out and go, oh, trigonometry. Yeah, I've done a lot of that since I, see, you know, I'm, we did trig grade 10. <coughs> a little bit in grade 13 um, in uh, calculus. But you pull out your book. The best way to study for the GRE uh, math portion literally is to get about a grade 11 math book. And just go through it. And you look at it and go, I don't remember this. And you go through a couple problems and go, stuff. Like, I'm confident that I could still do a complicated set of differential equations. I just, I'd need a calculus book. I haven't really done a lot of calculus in, um, the last time I did calculus, like, in anger, <laughs> would have been the end of the first term, my first year, when I took first year calculus. Because Captain Idiot over here said, I'll take first year math for math majors. Um, why go the easy way and take math for people in social science? No, 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 no. I'm good at math. <laughs> I'll take the hard math. I can't. Sometimes, you know, and it's the thing, and you think you come in, especially, you know, you come into university and you're just, oh, I'm smart. Oh, yeah. Then you get something back and go, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I made a bad life choice. <laughs> First lab report I wrote in psychology. 57. 57. I looked at it and went, I had some sort of five, but I don't think that's good, from what I understand. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, could, I could probably do some high-end calculus, but I would have to have a book in front of me. You know what? It wouldn't take me three months to learn how to do it. It would probably take me a couple of days to be learning some stuff. Because I've done it before. Same. I haven't. I remember a couple years ago, I started skating with my son. Uh, I hadn't skated God, in about eight years, maybe more than that, ten years. Put my skates on, you get on the ice first, and you go, whoa, right, not standing on feet, standing on razor-sharp blades. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right, that's how you skate. <laughs> it comes right back to you. You know, right, literally riding a bicycle is, is the classic example. If you haven't ridden a bike in a long time, and many of you guys probably have been through this, but... I hadn't ridden a bike in a very long time when, when I, uh, we moved back here. I'd ridden a bike in like six or seven years. I first got on a bike and went, ooh, that's weird. Oh, I know. 
I didn't have to have my dad come up from London and teach me. <laughs> you know, worked out okay. So, I mean, now this is true in any kind of learning, and he found this. He's the first person that found this, and he found real scientific proof, proof not just that people knew that, you know, this happened. He found the key thing was repetition. The more times you repeated a list, the more savings you have. He found the classic forgetting curve. Right? You forget most stuff at the beginning, and then less and less and less. Because there's less to remember, because you don't remember as much. That forgetting curve holds true in every kind of learning in all species. Pretty much. I mean, it's so uh, ubiquitous that when it doesn't happen, it, it's weird. Like I talked about priming and how it's steady. That's weird. That's, that, that's a weird thing. There's no forgetting curve there. That's what makes it kind of exciting. He found the importance of contiguity. So if you remember BAP, you're more likely to remember GAT than you are to remember the one after it, which is um, DAX. Yes, I know, but he, he had never watched Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It wasn't going to come up for another 130 years. So, not 100 years, actually. 1997, about 100 years. Again, none of you watch that show or know what it is. Now I'm just going on and making a geek. So, if you remember back, you're more likely to remember Dax than you are to remember Dax. Is that because it's right after? Mm hmm. Contiguity. Exactly. They're contiguous. However, reversal was detrimental. So it's not just contiguity, it's contingency. One is contingent on the other. So remembering GAT doesn't help remember BAP. Remembering GAT helps remember DAX. Now this is interesting because for the longest time, people that were called the, you know, the associationists, John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and that whole crew, they said things are associated in time. They come together. It's contiguity, they said. They never talked about contingency. He tried doing the list backwards hard. And you all have memorized the alphabet, I hope. I think they make you do that when you, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to know, but you can't do it backwards very easily. Try, try this to yourself right now, do the bat alphabet backwards. Not easy, is it? Yeah, I can't get past Y. You go Z, Y, X, W. They start going forward, and then to go backwards. Because going backwards, they say, wait a second, counting backwards is easy. Yeah, numbers have value. Numbers mean something. Letters are in a completely arbitrary order, I think. Is there a reason that A is at the beginning of the alphabet? I don't know, some Etruscan guy in like, 3000 BC went, well, let's put this one to see get it. Yeah. Um, okay, so what's the actual definition for this? Contiguity just means two things are going hard together. They're contiguous. Okay. Yeah. And contingency is one thing that ends on the other. So it comes before. Yeah. So, this is interesting because no one knew this. People didn't expect this, which is interesting because people had known the alphabet. So the problem here then is, well, so he's already, he's bad. Funny things. First of all, people knew this was going to happen, knew this was going to happen. 
knew they'd be forgetting, knew this would happen. And I can just see how it would have been back then. People were like, oh, I think how so you're wasting our time finding out about common sense. Like people were saying with psychology. And then he says, yeah, but what about this? <laughs> I do two Germans. I do calm German that kind of talks like this and screaming, interrogating Gestapo guy. And I, that's my German impression. It offended someone well too bad. Um, it's a joke. It's a freaking joke. Okay. <laughs> Members of the German club inside. All right. For his friends called him Ebby. I don't know. I doubt it. I just like saying that. Hey, Ebby, what are you working on? I'm remembering lists of vowel concepts, talks about concept trigrams. You've been doing that for 20 years. Why <laughs> don't you have some sauerkraut and come with me and have some beer somewhere, you know? What am I doing? I'm trying to. Hey, it's sad, really. Okay. He, he found interference. He found interference. Now, interference. <laughs> sour bread, you like that one, Jesse? Um, make sour bread. It's really good. It's kind of like weird pickled meat that you know, roast. I know that doesn't sound good. Most German food doesn't sound good when you describe it. When you eat it, it's good. Um, interference. He find, found that one list could interfere with the other. Like, if, let's see, we have back and, um, okay, let's say in the next list one of the things is bit. Similar enough would interfere. That's cool. We talked about interference today. He found the magic number seven. Well, we give a lot, a lot of credit here to, to, to Bauer in the 60s finding the magic number seven. He found it too, the idea that you could hold seven things in consciousness at once. He was pretty sure that chunking would happen. The idea that instead of it being individual constant out, constant trigrams, that you would have chunks of things. Like you, you said, eventually it becomes this, that you remember back, gap, backs. They become chunks of information. He found it was important to have distributed practice versus massed practice. Distributed practice is, and this is true, and you guys, those of you guys that don't know this or haven't figured this out yet, if you're studying, uh, when you should know that the best way to study for a test is to study, you know, 45 minutes a night for five nights. It's best not to study. What's that? That's three hours and four hours and forty. Sorry, that's three, four, three hours and forty-five minutes one night the night before. It doesn't work. I mean, it works. Some you learn to remember some stuff, but you have to nearly as well as if you distribute your practice. But you know what the thing is? That's also true in Max learning maze. He found this. This is one of those things I, I, I sort of, and I think probably a lot of you guys too, I figured out early on in university, it was like, you know, it works better. Working smart, not as hard. I was always the annoying guy before finding exams. I was usually just the annoying guy. Before a task, people said, oh man, I pulled it all night, or I was up all night, just, I got one hour of sleep. Really? I studied for 45 minutes, and then I watched TV. I hate you, Brock. <laughs> um, it's not bad, I think, for a career. Especially when you start all this stuff. I think it's pretty good. 
There are people out there, however, that dispute his importance. They say, Ebbinghaus wasn't that big a deal. Those people don't know what they're talking about because look at all the stuff we discovered. That's huge. How could anybody dispute what people do? I don't know. I think it's jealousy. Um, I honestly do. People say things like, it's almost the sort of classic, well, he discovered things everyone knew we would find. But someone has to find them. Because like, they were all things, for example, you didn't take learning that, right? Yeah. But Thomas Brown, this Scottish philosopher, you guys talk about human history? Okay. So he was a Scottish philosopher. He said that you'd have all these rules of association that, well, he said, for example, uh, well, none of these things, but he said, yeah, none of these things. But he said you'd have things like contiguity would be important. He said there would be uh, that repetition would be important. He said all that kind of stuff. So a philosopher said it. Somebody's still tested. Somebody's still tested. So they said, look, he, oh, he was just inspired by some philosophers, did some stuff that everyone knew would happen, except no one knew uh, that, that, that. And those are big. Also, savings, I don't think anybody really said that. Uh, I think Brown might have said savings in a Rambo. So, and people to this day give him, they say we give him too much credit as being sort of the father of cognitive psychology. But, in the study of memory, but that's what he is. It, look, put it this way, if you have two diametrically opposed groups, hardcore behaviorists and cognitive psychologists, that both say he's important, he's probably pretty important. Right. Now, William James, um, William James, first American psycho- psychologist, <coughs> in 1890, publishes a book called Principles of Psychology, which is amazing because psychology had been around for 11 years. And he's like, well, I'll write the definitive textbook then. His brother, Henry James, you know Henry James, author? Very psychological kind of 1890s. Um, Modelist. In fact, if you read Henry James, you kind of get the idea he should have been the psychologist. And when you read William James, he's such a good writer, he should have been the novelist. It's, it's literally fun to read this textbook. It's one of the few. But it's, it's one of those things at some point, if you're going to be a psychology student, like you go to graduate school, or you're really into psychology, you should really just read principles at some point. It's a two-volume two, two book. And he talks about everything. <coughs> And a lot of it, a lot of it he's making up because it's only been around 11 years. He references Ebbinghaus and, 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 and all these other Germans like crazy because they were the only ones. They were it. So he's the first American psychologist. Um, he said that thought is personal. Please. Uh, he was also into like occult stuff, right? Yeah. Is that in his textbook? Yeah. Except, except he also shows that he couldn't find anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the neat thing was, like a lot of people in the late 1800s, he believed in like ghosts, and he believed in uh, mind reading. Because you know, why not? It's 1890. You're an idiot. So he believed this stuff, but then he went and tried to find it, and he really had no luck. We stopped, we psychologists stopped trying to find this stuff in about 1930. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. It's like trying to find the ether. It's like, well, you know, eventually someone said, you know what? I bet there's no ether. <laughs> ah, 
<laughs> or like the, it was the uh, French guy that talked about N rays. I figured that even is. That's something in physics. Pulls down all the N rays. I don't know what that accent was. Should have been French there. But no, they didn't find any N rays. And eventually, about 1930, psychologists went, okay, this is stupid. We're wasting our time, our careers, our students' lives. Let's stop looking for magic and move on. But the thing is, you have to investigate it um, scientifically. So good for him. Right? Because a lot of people believe that then. It was a big thing. A lot of people still do. Now, so he said thought is a personal thing. That sounds like episodic memory to me. And, I'm not, and by the way, I've read a lot of these chapters in Principles, and it really sounds like episodic memory. Thought is changing. Memory is a dynamic process. Okay? And it's continuous. You're never not thinking. There's always something going on. It deals with objects independent of itself. Cats. So you can think about stuff, you can represent stuff that isn't around. And those, that stuff can be concepts, that stuff can be actual items. By the way, he's, again, doing this from first principles, which is and from just, a lot of this is guessing. And there's a little bit of early data. There is Ebbinghaus out there. There's the other Germans. There's Wundt and Fechner, uh, those guys, uh, Weber. There's not a whole lot else. It is interested in some things and a lot of others. This is the idea of selective attention. As we call it today. You read it though, it just reads so beautifully. Like it's just you get caught up in it. It's actually that well written. It's so written. And you realize that, like, you know, yeah, okay, he's a bit out there in some things, but he's also it's 11 years since psychology started. And it wasn't like there were psychology departments anywhere. 1890, the first psychology lab in North America opens. The second one opens at UT. So that's a smart guy. He talked about primary and secondary memory. Those are terms that he actually came up with. Remember what you primary and secondary memory? Those are, those are William James's terms. We still use them. He talked about memory without awareness. I talked about priming. He got lots of stuff wrong, which I haven't been listing. But again, it's not bad, because, I mean, this is a guy doing this from first principles. And that's, to me, very impressive. Questions about William James. Okay. Alfred Binet was a Frenchman, um, and he developed the first intelligence test, which you might think, what's that got to do with memory? But a lot of times, you know, a lot of the items in IQ tests today are memory items. In fact, there's digit spans, where the backwards digit span are both in IQ tests. There's, there's general knowledge questions in IQ tests. That's sorry, or service semantic memory. 
Benin was actually really a progressive guy. France was actually, France was the first country ever to make universal education a uh, right and the law. You could not send your kid to school. So in the, in the 18, up, up to the early 1900s, some kids just didn't go to school. They worked. Nice. That's nice. That's great. You know the SPCA, the site right for cruelty to animals? It grew out of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Because people, you, you know, you know, you know all that stuff with please sir, can I have soul? Right? Dickens? That was all, that's based on reality. That's what the world was like. It's better now. <laughs> right? You can't say to a kid who's five, well, you probably should go get a job. <laughs> you can, except that your kid can't just apply for a job and get one. <laughs> yeah, there are places where it still happens. I mean, here. So, the big thing was, if and the French government realized this, and Binet realized this. He said, look, if we're going to take all the kids and get them all in school, there's going to be some kids that are going to be slower than others. He actually used the, the term, like, that's where the term slow comes from, as far as not being very bright. Right? And he said, it's going to be hard on teachers, and it's going to be hard on kids. Let's see if we can find out Who's smarter than who else? So let's develop an actual intelligence test. Intelligence test. One of the important items in it was free recall. So one of the important things he said was that we needed to have to see how good the kid's memory is. We'll give them a list of words and we'll have them recall them. Of course, it's France, so it's words like souffle and baguette. <laughs> yes, no problems there. He found that he's, he's the first guy to find the serial position effect. The idea that things at the beginning of the list are better remembered than things late in the list, um, in the middle of the list, rather, and also things late in the list. Right? You know the serial position effect, so. Let's say you got, well, the number of items you've got, uh, the order the item was presented in, and we've got the probability of recalling it. Looks like that. Early stuff is well remembered, late stuff is well remembered, stuff in the middle is very well remembered. Why is that? Well, because the early stuff ends up in long term memory. Right? Early stuff goes into long term memory. Because if I, the first word I give you, you know it's a memory test comment, so I know the first word is tree. What do you do when you go tree, tree? Stuff, right? That's what you do. And then the next word comes like it's like chair. And you go tree, chair, tree, chair, tree, chair, tree, chair. And the next word comes and it's a speaker. And eventually, those words, there's so many words, they, they, they can't get repeated enough to get into long-term memory. Then you get the last word, which is light. Then I say, okay, please now recall the words. Because that's how we talk. And the little French boy says, yeah, the first word I remember was light. Uh, <laughs> of course, because it's still in short-term memory. Then he goes back and goes, and then I think the next one was tree. I don't know. Now, that knows how it suddenly became almost an Italian caricature. <laughs> um, I can't do little kid European accents. It's a very specific problem I have. It's a specific lesion. Um, and the rest of them are hard. I can actually stop that. This is the privacy effect. This is the recency effect. I get rid of the recency effect. 
All I gotta do is wait. I'll wait a couple of minutes. Or even better, I'll give you a distracted task. I talked about that the other day. Maybe I'll just ask you to count backwards by 17 to 10,000. Suddenly, the stuff in short-term memory is gone. Now the only thing you remember is love. Drink. <laughs> That's pretty good. He was one of the first guy to look at errors. Um, and he found that early errors were acoustic and later errors were semantic. Acoustic meaning the way the word sounded. Remember I talked about this the other day. He was the first guy to do this. Early errors were acoustic. In other words, well, that's right after you put in the list. Stuff's still in short-term memory. You haven't even thought about the meaning of the word yet. Later ones are semantic. Neat. So Benet doesn't get a lot of credit as a guy who studied memory because he really invented the IQ test. But a lot of what he was doing was stuff on memory. Because, you know, while having a great memory doesn't mean you're really smart, being really smart almost always means you have a pretty good memory. Right? Because you've got to remember all that stuff. If you know a bunch of stuff and you can't access it, it's not very useful. called the importance effect with, with, with prose memory. This is the idea of how important something is in a story. The more, the more important it is from sort of a plot point characteristic, the more likely you are to remember it. So if you tell him this little French kid a story, and you tell him, by the way, the guy's wearing a striped shirt, it's France after all, it's maybe a mine. I'm going with all the European stereotypes today. Um, so but then it turns out that then he goes out and does, uh, I don't know, what's he doing? He goes and uh, plays in the park with his friend Henri. Uh, and they play, they, play, uh, they play that game with the hoop and the stick. This is France and it's 1890. And then Tintin shows up. Um, for some of you, there's others who who's Tintin? Remembering the color of the kid's shirt doesn't matter. Remembering that he went and played with his little buddy Henri Maps. Okay. Now, what you want to do in this case is you're actually giving the kid, having the kid try to remember the whole story verbatim. You're more likely to remember sentences perfectly when they have important plot points in them, when they aren't just unimportant details. That shows that we encode things we pay more attention to things, the more important they are. Right? He found phrases were better remembered than single words, which is cool, because it shows the importance of meaning. And he found, most importantly, the importance of what we call gist. In other words, the story itself, remembering it verbatim, people didn't do that so much. What they did remember was what happened in the story. Right? If you're talking to somebody about um, what happened in, in, in yesterday's episode of some TV show, right? you don't talk about the exact, then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And, like, you don't have an exact order. You don't have every scene in your head. What you have is, I know what happened. 
you know, here's, remember this bit? We 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 been watching the show uh, Arrow. You see the Arrow show? The guy has a hoodie pulled over his eyes and he can't shoot an arrow. Um, watching that, and I went up to take our son to bed, and then I came back down, and my wife said, you want me to be blinded? I said, first of all, please try to catch what? She needs arrow. Um, but she can explain the episode and what's going on in about 30 seconds. She can give me the gist of what's happening. She didn't have to set every scene for me. Right? Well, it starts out with him running around shooting arrows. Then he takes an arrow. And then he takes his shirt off and works out because it's from the CW and it's an effort for women. And then because so you have to do that, she could say, "Oh, he's fighting another guy who's also an archer guy, who's Captain Jack from Torchwood." That's kind of cool seeing him. Kind of like that. So the gist tells me the gist. I get the story. Does she remember the whole story? Oh, yeah. So again, it's pretty good for a guy who was doing it really out of first principles. It's pretty impressive. So that's still in the 1800s. That's, these guys really, you know... And I don't think Binet gets the credit he deserves that other psychologists do is for the importance. He's one of the first guys doing something really applied, though he finds some really interesting uh, phenomena. So I think that's cool. Um, in North America, cognition, the study of cognition kind of goes away. Uh, which is a shame. Probably set psychology back some. In some respects, it kind of saved psychology, too. So, introspection, the idea of thinking about your own thinking, of using your own thoughts as data, is okay if it's done Wundt's way. The way that Wundt and the psychophysicists did these things, the guys that psychophysics, what they did is they said, okay, which one of these is heavier? Which, which light is brighter? Which sound is, is, is louder? That's a yes, no answer. That's okay. Right? That's okay. What happened was, <coughs> and because in this case you have trained observers, either you train someone to be a subject in your experiments, or you do it yourself. Um, and they're very simple events. Is this brighter than this? Is this heavier than this? It's really easy stuff to do. So then this guy, Titchener, gets a, gets a PhD with Wood. And Titchener... <coughs> My theory is Titchener actually didn't speak German, and he faked all his PhD. Uh, I'm sure that's not true, but... Because he takes it and he says, well, what we'll do is... You know how we'll, how, how we'll do... Um, introspection now. We'll study more complex things. Like, how does my mind work? Now I'm going to sit here and think and take observations about my thinking. I think you can probably see the scientific issues with that. I'm quite sure there's a small green man living in my head controlling everything from a master control center. Really, Titchener? Well, you can't prove me wrong. It's my thoughts. See, there's a bit of an issue there. And that happened in the early 1900s, and it was really a bad thing. I mean, you never said anything about the small reading. Um, so it was too bad, because it actually, they, they took something like psychophysics and tried to apply this to other stuff. It didn't work. So you can't prove or disprove any data from introspections, because my introspections, because you're not me. 
right? So if I tell you there's a little, little green man, or if I tell you that on my eyeball, I have like, it's like Terminator, and I'm getting a readout the whole time. You don't know that's not true. I told you it was. You can probably be pretty sure it's not true, but it's still. You can't prove it. Suddenly, psychology goes from being this really hardcore sciencey stuff down to like a giant waste of everyone's time. It's horrible. So what happens then? The behaviorists show up. They say, "Look, people like Watson. Watson becomes the president of the American Psychological Association in 1915, and he makes this speech about behaviorism as his, 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 his address to the APA." And he's basically, Watson, by the way, was a very interesting man. I mean, he's actually, if you look up the word asshole in the dictionary, it's right beside him. It's a picture. Um, <laughs> he's not a very nice guy. Uh, yeah, scared of a really nice guy. Watson was not a nice guy. Um, so John Watson gets up and basically declares war on introspection. Because you get two things. You get introspection coming in. In psychology departments, and then you have Freudian psychoanalysis, which is just the ramblings of a coked up guy from Vienna. Okay, he stopped taking the coke. I like saying that. A coked up, sex obsessed neurologist. With mother issues. Well, sure. But I think we can go with sex obsessed, and we don't have to remember that he about the thing with the mothers. Okay, just throw it down. Um, but it was what were the primary motivations and then the theories? Well, his primary motivation is theory. I don't know what he... I think he was actually trying to help people. I just don't think he was doing science. So you got somebody who's like saying, you know, another classic non-scientific thing, which is um, you want to have sex with your mother until your father. And you say, no, I don't. He says, you're repressive. <laughs> well, so my theory's correct. And then if you say, I do, call the authorities, obviously. So, but your, theory, your, your, your theory's still correct. So you got that happening out in the clinical area. You've got introspection in the psychiatry. So they say that's it. Stop. The problem is introspection, if done properly, like I said, like foot and all that stuff, would have been okay. So now we become interested in only the observable. And you can't observe consciousness. So you can't observe memory. So you stop studying memory. It got to the point at Harvard University where B.F. Skinner was, um, the people didn't say, <clears throat> excuse me, didn't say what's on your mind, they said what's on your behavior. That's a weird Orwellian world I don't want to live in. So it becomes a stimulus response psychology. It's all about stimulus and response. And a lot of good stuff came out of that. Came out of that, by the way. Don't misunderstand I me. Mean, a lot of really good Horton and Guthrie, stuff on avoidance learning, all that stuff that a lot of us talked about in learning last term, which is really interesting stuff. It just, it really stifled the interest and the ability to study memory. And in fact, it basically became all of what psychology was well into the 1950s. Psychology was basically people studying rats and pigeons. Some people. Rats are cheaper. But to pay them, they always show up for the experiment. 
There's something to be said for working animals that always show up, you don't have to pay them, and for fruit them. You have to kill them at the end. There's that. Sometimes you want to kill undergraduates. So it all really bounces up yet. So, <laughs> so for a long time, well in the 1950s. Now, some people resisted. Mostly, these are people over in Europe. Uh, the Gestalt psychologists, you know, Gestalt psychology, right? The idea that, you, the idea of perceiving a whole, perceiving patterns. This is a German thing. They didn't like the reductionism of behaviorism. Uh, there were even people in Britain like Bartlett. Uh, Bartlett studied, he's one of the other guys who looked back at Binet and said, you know, the stuff with gist is really interesting. Let's see how people remember a story. And then he found out that people don't remember the story, they reconstruct the story. So we talked about construction and reconstruction in memory. So construction and reconstruction. So basically, and that can tell us actually that our memories are not that, I talked about this the other day, are not necessarily reliable. Because we reconstruct events. And unless we're purposefully lying, and let's say you're not lying, you're actually trying to remember something, and two people have different versions of the same story. Same story. One person is wrong. They must be, by definition, at least one must be wrong. But you're reconstructing the event. And how many times have we all had these situations where you just two friends talking about something that happened yesterday and you both remember it differently? Right? That's a, that's a common thing. We reconstruct events. We don't just push play on something. Doesn't work that way. Like, kids do that, and you learn very quickly. In fact, as a kid, that that's not a very efficient way to remember stuff. It doesn't work very well. It's better to remember gist, right, and then reconstruct stuff. Questions about this stuff today? All right, so we'll stop for today, and we'll continue talking about this Wednesday. Thanks, guys. On the wall.
is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right, giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.